Would you pray with me as we begin this morning? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'll invite you to stand as you're able for the reading of scripture this morning. We continue to study Jesus' parables in the Gospel of Luke. We are in Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 15. Then Jesus said to his disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and he said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Give me an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? And he answered, A hundred jugs of olive oil. And he said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it fifty. Then he asked another, How much do you owe? And he replied, A hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and make it eighty. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in a very little, whoever is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much. And whoever is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then, you've not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you've not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. The gospel of the Lord, praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. You may be seated. Now, if this sounds like a tough, confusing, confounding parable, it's because it is. Very smart people have worked to avoid this parable and how confusing it is. I read it countless times in the last two weeks, and there are parts of it that are still incredibly mysterious to me. Even reading it now, I'm not completely sure that I understand everything that's going on here. Actually, I'm pretty sure I don't understand everything. Rudolf Bultmann, who was the most uh, important biblical commentator of the 20th century, once called this parable incomprehensible. So when the brightest biblical minds throw up their hands at a parable, it gives me a bit of an inferiority complex, don't you think? What chance do I have of really being helpful regarding the parable of the shrewd manager? 
because of how historically difficult this parable has been, I do approach it humbly, and I'm still very vexed by it, but I do think I have some wisdom from this parable for us today. That wisdom comes not from understanding everything perfectly, it actually comes from simplifying. Sometimes, the interpretation that is right in front of our noses is the one that is intended to speak to our hearts. So first of all, let me tell you some of the interpretations that I've read and and studied that are incorrect, so we can sort of rule them out. There are some, particularly in a more Reformed tradition, that see this parable as an allegory just to the spiritual life. That God has given us certain gifts and spiritual gifts, and we are meant to use them. And when we don't use our spiritual gifts, God brings us to task, and, and, and we can redeem our trust with him by righting our wrongs as best we can with the gifts that he's given to us. I say no to this because Jesus' interpretation of the parable has nothing to do with spiritual gifts. N.T. Wright, he sees the Jewish people, known biblically as Israel, the people Israel, as the manager who has squandered God's good gifts by not following the law and largely missing Jesus as the Messiah. Now, there are some national undertones here. He's not totally wrong, but again, it does not fit in the context, particularly Jesus' teaching after the parable. And others read this as a teaching primarily about money, that we are to use the money entrusted to us to curry favor with other people so that we might win them over to our master Jesus. It's sort of an evangelism through money message. Or that Jesus respects dishonest business dealings so long as they are crafty and they lead to a good return. These interpretations are correct to say that the parable is about money, but they are incorrect in their application. I think that when we sift through all that we can and all that we can't know about this parable, we are left with something that I think is beyond dispute, and that is the call to stewardship. The call to stewardship. We've been asking every week, What is the kingdom value that is communicated in this parable? Well, this morning, it is the value of stewardship. I know I just read the parable, but let me try and summarize what's happening here uh, in case you need uh, another view on it. There's a master who has a manager. It's likely that the manager is a real estate manager. That's, That's what the business is. And the debtors are farmers who pay their rent with whatever they have, whether it's oil or wheat. Those are the things that are mentioned in this parable. The manager has been doing uh, a pretty poor job, which likely means that he has not been collecting rent in a reasonable way or time at all for the sake of his master. And when the master realizes that he's not being paid any rent for these properties, he calls his manager in and finds out that he's been careless, he's been reckless, he's been negligent. He fires him on the spot. Rather than plead for his job, the manager decides to get crafty. He gets practical. He considers other jobs. Digging ditches? Nah, that's not really for me. Not really a manual labor kind of person. He could beg for money, but he's too ashamed to do that. So how's he going to eat? How's he going to survive? So he devises a shrewd plan. The debtors, these farmers, they don't know that their rep has been fired. So he calls on them one by one. How much do you owe the master? One says, 100 measures of oil. And the manager says, hey, how about we reduce that to 50? Do you think that debtor was excited? I think so. That's a massive debt reduction. So too, another one says, 100 measures of wheat. Let's make it 80, a 20% reduction. No small matter. And when the master finds out what the manager has done, 
we might expect him to be angry, right? But instead, he commends the actions of the manager. Why does the master do this? Uh, We are indebted to the work of Middle East scholar Kenneth Bailey for much of this background. Bailey posits that the reduction is actually commensurate with the manager's commission. So essentially, he wrote off a a, a 50% and then 20% commission on a less inflationary commodity. It's a win-win, okay? By rewriting these contracts, the master is becoming whole. He's actually receiving the money that he wasn't getting and what he's owed. And the manager now has two new debtors to himself, not financial debts, but social debts, which is how the social order worked. They are indebted because he gave them such a great deal to feed him, to do future business with him, because he gave them such an incredible cut on the debt that they owed. In doing this, the master's reputation is strengthened, and the manager finds security for himself. I think that's the correct reading because Jesus' teaching that follows this parable makes sense in that context. So the simplest interpretation is stewardship of money. Stewardship of money. Which means that we need to talk about money this morning. I promise you, if there was another reasonable angle for me to take this text, I probably would. Uh, Not because I am uncomfortable talking about money, but because I know that many of you are uncomfortable hearing somebody else talk about your money. You've been lectured before, is my guess. Maybe you've been scoffed at because of the zip code that you live in. Maybe you've been made fun of for being affluent or wealthy, being a western suburb person. You've had people treat you strange when you tell them that you live in Hinsdale or Clarendon Hills or Western Springs or Darien or Elmhurst or wherever. You've had people curry favor with you because they're asking for financial help. You've heard pastors share messages about wealth that have overlooked you as a person and overlooked your story. I promise to not contribute to any of that this morning. I do not want this to be damning or shaming or exposing to you. You are people of means, and you certainly don't need me to inform you the truth about how money works. In fact, you have much more to teach me, I think. Instead, what I want to do is I want to get curious about how God might be wanting us to see our money as a portal into our heart and our heart's transformation so that we might know and experience the love and goodness and grace and happiness of Jesus. That is not typically how we think about our money, as a portal into uh, the happiness of our souls. But that is very biblical. So with that, I want to give four takeaways from this parable today. First is this, and it's a little surprising. God is pleased with financial shrewdness. Jesus says in verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. The manager who had been dishonest with his master's resources, withholding from the master the rent, the money that was rightly his, now acts wisely, shrewdly, and he is commended for it. Then he makes the comment, Jesus does, that the people of this age, a.k.a. ungodly people, 
are more shrewd than those who love and cherish their master Jesus. Kind of a stinging rebuke there. I sat with a a member of church this week over lunch who's done some work in this area, and he told me that he really feels that those words are still true today, that the people who live only for this world and for this life, who don't have any sense of of God or Jesus as master, with their worldly motives and their worldly methods, are often more shrewd in managing their financial lives than people who know the light of Jesus Christ, who hypothetically should have much nobler motives and methods at our disposal. The people of this world tend to have five-year business plans and their schemes to reduce costs and their strategies to maximize output. They study and work and save and calculate and assess and forecast in order to achieve these aims. They seize every opportunity that's available, and when none is available, they create new opportunities. They will often sacrifice not only their time and their energy, but even their health and their relationships in order to achieve their ambitions. They are very shrewd. My friend conveyed that he often interacts and and consults believers who have little plan. They sit on their resources. They get comfortable. They don't have a compelling vision for their money. Isn't that backwards? We who have a clear mandate to to do good from Jesus, to oppose evil, to resist temptation, to relieve suffering, to spread the word, to promote unity, to raise our children in the way of Christ, to support honest practices in the workplace and manage our time and influence public opinion, how do we compare to that manager in terms of shrewdness? Are we just sort of leaving it all up to chance? Jesus seems to value shrewdness. He seems to value wise, well-planned, and even risky financial moves that benefit a wide array of people. What this also means, which is something I've never said here, but I think it's important for each and every one of you to hear, is that Jesus does not despise or denigrate wealth itself. He doesn't. Actually, if you look at the life of Jesus, far from it. Jesus was super close to his benefactors. Wealthy people who funded his ministry, his ministry would not have happened without regular contact with wealthy people. Joseph of Arimathea, fascinating um, person in scripture. He's an essential player in the resurrection of Jesus. And basically all that we know about him is that he was a super wealthy guy. Furthermore, Jesus apparently never turned down a free meal from a rich person throughout his entire ministry because so much of his ministry is done at these tables. He does not condemn those who are wise and make wealth in their financial doings. He doesn't. He challenges those who build wealth only for themselves. More on that in in a moment. But I just felt it was really important to say that if you've ever felt judgment or scorn for having money, for having wealth, just know that that judgment and scorn does not come from Jesus. Second observation I have. God sees our relationship to money as part of our character and formation. It's very important that we have a correct view of our relationship to money in terms of our own spiritual formation. Verse 9, Jesus says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. What a strange verse, right? What Jesus is saying here 
is that we should recognize our wealth and use whatever wealth that we have wisely to do good, to build relationships, to relieve the suffering of other people, to support God's people and advance the work of his kingdom. Because when these resources are gone and this earthly life is finished, we do not get to take it with us. So we should use it now and use it well for the sake of God and others. Now, I know what some of you are already thinking, because I tend to think it all the time. You're thinking, yeah, but I'm not wealthy. Not me. Or maybe you're thinking, okay, like I'm doing okay in my life, but not compared to that person or that person or that person. I mean, did you see, Lars, did you see the house I drove by on the way here today? Did you see that car in the parking lot? It's really easy for us to do this. But I need to offer you a word that is true that I have said here numerous times before, but I I like to remind you of it. Every single person in here is super wealthy. Okay? Here's the standard for wealth. If you drove here in a car this morning, if you own or rent a home, if you expect to eat three meals today and you do not have any concerns about going hungry today, then you, my friend, congratulations in the grand scope of the world today and in the grand scope of human history for sure are in the tippy-top percentage of human wealth. Just for perspective. Most people uh, who, who look at that complex formula say that the living wage for a day, the average living wage is about $8 a day for working people. Now, I don't say this to you to diminish whatever financial difficulties you might be facing in your life. Far from it. But even those of us who are, who are a little less well-off are still really wealthy in the grand scheme of things, in, 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 in the terms of, of the world. And I think it's important for us to have that perspective. I think it's important to remind ourselves every once in a while that that is true. That wealth, all that we have been given, is meant to not only be used shrewdly, but is meant to bless and better the lives of other people. Money and our relationship to it is an essential element of our formation that we don't talk about nearly enough. We're going to discuss this at length next week when we talk about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. But we can recognize our relative wealth. And when we do, it gives us an honest assessment of ourselves and it opens the door for God to use that that wealth, that money, what we have, those amazing resources that so many could never dream of, to transform us more and more into his generous likeness. But if we don't have an honest assessment of how very blessed and wealthy we are, we're going to miss out on that formation opportunity. Third, and this is really the heart of it, God wants us to be a steward of his money, our money, his money, not master. We're stewards of the money that we have, not masters. I think one of the profound truths in this parable is the one that's right in front of our noses. The manager is not the master. Right? The manager is not the master. The manager is under no illusion that the money is his money. He knows it's his master's money. He knows that that money belongs to his master, and he's labeled as dishonest because he squanders his master's money at the beginning of the parable. That's what makes him dishonest. Jesus expounds on this in verses 10 through 12. Whoever is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much. And whoever is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you haven't been faithful with dishonest wealth, worldly wealth, 
Who will entrust you with true riches? And if you've not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give to you what is your own? We have to recognize that all that we have comes from God. He gave us health. He gave us our ability to work. He gave us the resources to buy and sell, the mind to comprehend things. For those of you who are students here, the minds to learn about these things in school, the technology to even exchange money, the breath in our lungs that animates us and gets us out of bed and gets us to the jobs that make us a living. It is all his. We work for it, and we should work hard for it, but it belongs to him. See, when we feel like it's our money, when we become the master rather than the manager, we seek to multiply it and utilize it and accumulate it and get at it regardless of its cost to others. But when we see the money that we have as God's money that we are stewarding, our focus is to act as what Jesus calls the children of light. So a stewardship heart is one that recognizes that all things come from God and they are his, and they seek to do the will of the master over what is entrusted to us. They recognize that the only way to do this is to know the master and to follow his lead. It's important to know that Jesus does not present stewardship as just one nice option of many options as a way to view money, but rather as a crucial way to view money as a Christ follower. So the call is clear to me. Be faithful in your stewardship of the money that God has given to you, not to advance your name, and not a way, but as a way to advance the name of Jesus and the way of Jesus. I think this also means that we can't get too comfortable building up huge nest eggs for our own personal rainy days and finding our security and our returns on investment. It's clear from Jesus' words that we will stand before God someday, each and every one of us. And just like the master in the parable, we will need to give account for what we've done with all that God has given to us. There will be lots of grace, but we will still have to open our portfolios and say, here's what I did, God, with what you gave me. He will see if we've stored things up for ourselves or if we've taken what's been given to us and given him a generous, shrewd return. Last, fourth, beware the love of money. Our passage ends in a haunting way, verses 13 and 14. No one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and wealth. The Pharisees, this is hard for me to read every time, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this, and what were they doing? They were sneering at Jesus. What a dark place to be in to sneer at Jesus. While it's true that Jesus might not despise wealth, he does despise the love of money because he knows how destructive it is in our lives. He knows the truth that the philosopher Seneca the Younger stated long ago that money has never made even one rich. That money will not fulfill us. That no matter how much we may love it, money will never love us back. So beware, dear friends, of falling in love with money for the sake of your souls. Next week, we're going to continue to talk about money. If it feels a little incomplete today, it's because it's sort of a two-part thing. We're going to focus our attention from stewardship to generosity next week. 
So I invite you to please plan on joining us because it's going to build off this message. But I think, to close, I just want to note that a disproportionate amount of Jesus' parables have to do with money. Almost a third of them. Why do you think that is? Well, I, I think that regardless of the century or the continent, the race or the creed, wealthy or destitute, godly or ungodly, money has a universality about it. I remember my dad's own wisdom as a young man trying to send me out into the world. I remember him saying, what I've learned is whether you have money or do not have money, it is so easy to obsess over money. I think Jesus would agree with this wisdom. And he knew that we struggle with it as we hear that word today, just as his original hearers struggled with it. I think the challenge for us is to constantly be asking, am I looking at money the way that God looks at money? Am I being shrewd? Am I acting as a steward rather than the master? Am I willing to see money as part of the way that God wants to form me? Does my love for God leave no room left over for love of money, Lord willing? This is the challenge that Jesus puts before us today to reorient our finances around Jesus himself. Life. Life is the free and joyful pursuit of self-interest. The generous may doubt this, but we know life offers more than a dedication to serving others. A spirit of love in the heart of God, we've moved on to something better. Money is what really matters. We don't believe all the hype about transforming our world. No, we want to live an extraordinary life of convenience and luxury, the sense of status and wealth, the power of instant gratification. We are uninterested in conforming ourselves to living with open hands, setting our eyes on the everlasting. The better way forward? To build a world around ourselves. This is the mindset of our day. We would be foolish to live the generous life. We don't believe it is worth our time. But when we encounter Jesus, he reorders the priorities of our heart. It is worth our time to live the generous life. We don't believe the mindset of our day. We would be foolish to build a world around ourselves. This is the better way forward. Setting our eyes on the everlasting, living with open hands. We are uninterested in conforming ourselves to the power of instant gratification, the sense of status and wealth, convenience and luxury. No, we want to live an extraordinary life of transforming our world. We don't believe all the hype about money is what really matters. We've moved on to something better. The heart of God. A spirit of love and dedication to serving. Others may doubt this, but we know life offers more than a pursuit of self-interest. The generous life is the free and joyful life. So God, would you teach us 
what it means to view the gifts that you've given to us, the monetary, financial gifts that you've given to us as yours? Would you teach us what it means to be stewards of the many gifts that you have given to us? Forgive us for the ways in which we seek to be master of them when you are already master of them. Would you teach us what it means to be wise with all that you have given to us? Would you teach us what it means to be shrewd, to seek a good return for you, that you would be made whole for the many gifts that you've given to us, and that we might make these resources work for the sake of others? Lord, I thank you for the gifts that you give to this congregation. We thank you that you have given us opportunities to to be in a place where we don't have to ask where our next meal is coming from. Would we see this gift as an incredible privilege and an opportunity to send that blessing back to you through our care of others? And Lord, would you help us to, to see our bank accounts, our checkbooks, as places in which you want to form us more and more into your likeness. Forgive us for hoarding these things, for for believing that they are our own, when they are tools in which you want to shape us more and more into your likeness. Make us wise, Lord, we pray in your name. Amen. Would you stand for our closing hymn, God Who's Giving Knows No Ending.